0: We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, but finally finishing chapter 1. So next time we'll be in chapter 2. So I encourage you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 67 down through verse 80. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 67, Dr. Luke records these words. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to our father Abraham, that He would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Let's pray. Once more, Lord, we come before you as a people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Messiah. And we know that we are unworthy of meeting and gathering together, nevertheless you have set your love upon us and we are grateful to you for it. And I pray that even as we look at this song sung by Zacharias in praise to your name, blessing the Most High, I ask that you would help us to see the many, many reasons we have to bless and praise your name for what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. The song we're going to be looking at in verses 67 down through verse 80 is actually the second of four songs in Luke's gospel. The first one is the one probably we know most well, and that would be the song of Mary, or often referred to as the Magnificat, because of the fact that in the Latin translation of Luke's gospel, the very first word of Mary's song is Magnificat. The second song is the one we're looking at. It's Zacharias's song, and it is referred to often as the Benedictus because, as you might guess, in the Latin, the first word in this song that Zacharias sings is the word Benedictus. The third song is the one sung by the angels in chapter 2, verse 14, and it's referred to as the Gloria. And I bet you could guess why it's referred to as that. And the fourth hymn in the birth narrative that Luke records, is found also at the end of chapter 2. And there it's referred to as the nunc dimittis because of the first words of the Latin of that song. So the second song we are going over today is Zacharias' song, the benedictus, the blessing. And he begins that first, that first word with blessed. Blessed is the Lord. And I thought that this was, honestly, in God's providence, wonderful timing, because obviously this week we are celebrating Thanksgiving, and we take intentional time to recall and reflect on the things that we are grateful to the Lord for. And a lot of times I think we tend to forget that part, that we aren't just thankful. It's not this esoteric, I just have a feeling of thankfulness. But that thankfulness is always expressed to someone for something. And when we as Christians understand that everything that comes to us comes from the hand of God, then our thankfulness is not directed to our circumstances, our thankfulness is not directed to the people in our life, ultimately, even though we are certainly grateful to people in our lives for things that they have done and blessed us with. But ultimately, our thanksgiving is rendered to God Himself. And I think that is modeled exactly in what Zacharias does, because Zacharias has just spent nine months dumb. He hasn't been able to say a single word. His wife has probably been learning how to communicate with him through sign language. And why has he spent those nine months dumb? He's been mute, unable to speak, because he refused to acknowledge the Word of God. When the angel came to him and says, your wife in her old age and you in your old age will enjoy a son, and your son will be called the prophet of the Most High, and he will be the one who will prepare the way of the Lord. And Zacharias, rather than responding with praise and joy, saying, Lord, how is it that you should visit me, instead says, how am I going to know this happens? To which the angel, of course, responds, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And you will be mute till you see everything that I have said fulfilled because you didn't believe my word. And ultimately, you didn't believe the word of God. So for nine months, Zacharias is mute, unable to say a single word, until the day of the naming of his son, whom he had just circumcised, happens. And everybody assumes that his name is going to be Zacharias. They, in fact, they, they, they tell Mary, or excuse me, they tell uh, Elizabeth, look, Elizabeth, I understand, you know, Zacharias can't talk, but we all know he would be wanting to name his son after himself. After all, this is your only son, probably the only son you'll get, so don't you want to perpetuate the family name by having him named Zacharias? But Elizabeth remembered the word of God. She said, no, 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 his name will be John. And Zacharias is sitting there watching this, wishing he could say the words, because now he understands that everything God had said is true, but his lips are still tied. He cannot speak. So the people turn to him, and they say, well, Zacharias, what do you want your son to be named? Who do you want him to be named after, yourself, or is there some other family name you want to use? So he writes down the words, his name is John. And in that moment, Zacharias' lips are opened. And it says in verse 64 that after his tongue is loosed, he spoke praising God. Zacharias had nine months to ponder his disbelief at the message of God. And the first thing he does after his tongue is loosed is to sing a song and this song is his benedictus to the Lord God of Israel. I think that Zacharias is a model for us of what it means to bless God, to praise God. If you were to look through the Psalms over and over again, the Psalms are filled with people who are saying, blessed is the Lord, or praise the Lord. And Zacharias offers that as an illustration to us for why we are called to bless to praise, to magnify and exalt the name of the Lord. This Thanksgiving, that should be our focus, praising the Lord together. And I believe that Zacharias models for us three ways in which we could praise the Lord, or three reasons, I should say, for which we should bless and praise the Lord. So let's look through these. Number one, I believe the first reason he gives is because of redemption. In verse 68, he says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel for... So he's, he's, he's got this prayer of praise to God, and he says, blessed is the name of the Lord. If you will, if you're writing a paper or writing a song, this is his thesis statement. Blessed is the name of the Lord. And then he's going to list reasons why. Why do I bless God? For he has visited and redeemed his people the the concept of god visiting his people is littered throughout scripture it's all over the place in fact when people are experiencing something that in their culture would have been deemed negative for example someone like hannah in first samuel who wants a child but doesn't have one it is said that the lord has seemingly from their perspective abandoned her he is not with her or you look at somebody like job Job has just experienced the fires of hell, as it were, with the onslaught of Satan, attacking his children, attacking his possessions, and finally attacking his person. And what do his friends say? His friends say, well, clearly you have sinned. God is avoiding you, or in some ways God is experiencing for you judgment because you refuse to repent of the sin that's in your life. But when there is blessing in somebody's life, the Jewish people would often refer to it as God visiting his people. And I believe this theme is the thread that kind of links most of Scripture together. Because what ultimately, before the fall, was the sign of God's blessing to his people? His unhindered presence. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, attending the garden, just as God has told them to do, what does it suggest? That God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and that that was somehow a sign of fellowship with Adam and Eve. That God visited His people. He spent time with His people in the garden. But what was broken the moment Adam rebelled in his sin? God visiting His people. In fact, when God comes to visit Adam and Eve after they have fallen in sin, rather than running to God and seeing His visit as a blessing, what are they doing? They're running and hiding because they don't want to be in His presence. They don't want the Holy One to visit them because they knew they were unholy. And all throughout then the Old Testament, there is this language that is used. Speaking of God as either present with his people or forsaking them. Why does the psalmist in Psalm 22 pen the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he believed that God was not there with him. Simultaneously, what causes the psalmist to say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. God has visited His people. Here, Zacharias takes that language, and he says the Lord God is to be be blessed because His presence is with us. He has visited us. And as Christians, that is our hope, that God has visited us, particularly in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came to earth to redeem His people, And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God has visited you and you now know the presence of God because who resides in those who are Christians? God's Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is a temple which you have of God and you are not your own? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It belongs to Him when you're a Christian. God has visited you and you have His presence. That redemption is, includes the presence of God, but it includes the salvation of God. For he says he has redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The salvation we have received because of Jesus Christ is is tied to the redemption that is the thread that connects, I believe, the Scriptures together. That God is working about to redeem his people by once again visiting them with His presence, and giving to them salvation. But you sit here and you say, salvation from what? And for some people who don't like the Scriptures, who don't like the gospel, they very snidely say, well, it's salvation from God Himself, because God is the one who's going to cast you into hell. So God has to save you from himself. In fact, there's a video online by a guy named Rob Bell who is doing a video to promote his book called Love Wins. And in that video, he says, very snarkily and snidely, somehow Christianity has believed that that we have to be rescued from God, that Jesus has to save us from God. As if somehow this doctrine of the holiness of God and God's wrath on sin is so repugnant to any thinking individual but the reality is our sin has separated us from holy god that it is the wrath of god that is given to those who are the children of disobedience but zacharias's prayer is that blessed be the lord god of israel that same one who expresses wrath on sin is the one to whom i give my blessing why because He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And this is where we don't like or always think through, I think, the implications of mercy and justice. Because sometimes we assume we deserve the mercy of God. Somehow God owes me mercy as a human being. It's like an inalienable right I have. And if God doesn't show me mercy, then that somehow makes Him unjust. But if God owes me mercy... I'm not talking about mercy. I'm talking about justice then. God in His holiness will not sacrifice His righteous character. And in justice, every single one of us in this room, every single human in human history deserves the wrath of God. And if God were to send every one of His creatures into the fiery pits of hell, He would be perfectly just in doing so because Our sin against an eternal holy God deserves nothing short of an eternal expression of his wrath against it. So when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have said, well, that's it for that. I'm going to throw them into my judgment. I'm going to start over again. He could have. But instead, God had chosen in his infinite wisdom to orchestrate details that would lead to the greatest manifestation of his glory, namely, his glory as expressed in the salvation of sinners. Your salvation as a Christian is not ultimately because you're a super wise person or somehow God was like, wow, I cannot live without that one, but simply because of the mercy and the tender kindness of God. He displayed his mercy and kindness because he's good. He is good. But I also think that Zechariah hits on something really interesting as well, that he he comments on the presence of God. He talks about salvation, but ultimately he says this is something that God has promised from the past. In verse 72, he's done this to perform mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. God is not only here expressing mercy to sinners, as Zacharias sees it, but He's also fulfilling His faithful promise. God made a promise to Abraham, in you all the nations shall be blessed. When God chooses Abraham, not because Abraham was inherently worthy, not because Abraham did anything worth the kindness and love of God, instead He chose him out of His goodness and out of His grace. God says to him, get, get you up from your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Zacharias, as a good Old Testament scholar who probably has a lot of the Torah memorized, if not all of it, sings this song, and in his song he says, God remembered his covenant. God remembered his promise, and he kept it to us. I don't think anything could be more devastating to us as humans than when somebody promises something and they don't fulfill their promise. Anytime a politician opens their mouth and makes a promise to you and then doesn't keep it, you get rightly upset about that. Or if you're a child and your parents make a promise that you'll do something and then they don't keep their promise, that's frustrating. In fact, me and uh, Mr. Lee and Mr. Yoda were talking a a couple weeks ago about the fact that you have to be very careful with the language you use when you're making comments to questions your kids ask because a lot of times they take certain words and just assume it's a promise. So, Benjamin says… Every every time we pass by Culver's, he's always making the comment, there's the place where we get Scoopy tokens. And I was like, yeah, that's right. He's like, can we go there after church and go get some Scoopy tokens, get some ice cream? If I say, we'll see, that means no. (laughs) If I say, yes, we will, I have an obligation to keep my promise. And if I don't keep my promise, it's devastating to him. I think for us, our view of God would be greatly shaken if we were consistently seeing him making a promise that he can't keep or making a promise that he could keep and doesn't. Zacharias says, "Fifteen, 1,600 years ago, longer even, there is a man you made a promise to As Almighty God, you said, I will be a blessing to all of the people through your lineage. And Zechariah says, you kept your covenant. You kept your promise. You said exactly what you meant when you said all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through this line. You weren't kidding. You meant it and you remembered your holy covenant. And it's always interesting in Scripture that a lot of times when they talk about God's faithfulness and God's faithfulness to His Word, they use the word He remembered. That God remembered so-and-so. Or that God remembered His promise. Or God remembered His covenant. And it's not as though we're saying that somehow the divine mind forgot, and then He said, oh, wait, boy, Time passes. I totally forgot I said I was going to do that. That happens to me. That happens to me when I promise Benjamin or Daniel something and in the moment I probably was making a promise just to get them to stop asking me the same question over and over again that later on they remind me of that promise and I'm like, "Oh yeah, I totally forgot I said I was going to do that." That's not the case with God. God doesn't sit there on his divine throne and all of a sudden one of his messengers, angels says, Psst, you forgot, you said you were going to go and send a Messiah. No. God remembered in the sense of that it never left his mind. That it was an act that he brought to his mind constantly as the God of heaven. That he is the covenant-keeping God. And when God makes a promise, his promises are sure, which means you have nothing to fear. If God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he won't. If God says, I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, he has. If God says, I will come again and I will bring you to myself that where I am, there you may be also, he will. God's promises are sure. And so Zacharias praises God for redemption. In verse 77, he says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. By the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. This is just such a precious, precious promise. It is the redemption we have received. Number two, we not only should bless the name of God for the salvation, the redemption we have received, but also for his revelation. Notice that when Zacharias rehearses the things that God has done, he points out that God didn't just do it in a vacuum and that God didn't just do it as a surprise. God didn't just say, surprise! I sent a Messiah. You had no idea it was coming, but I sent a Messiah. God had spoke repeatedly through the mouth of His promises. In verse 70, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets, who have been since the world began... This is not something that God was doing in a vacuum. This was not something that God was doing without revealing His divine plan. This was something God had been revealing specifically age after age after age so that people knew exactly what His intentions were. He revealed it through His prophets. And unfortunately, like our day, ancient Israel didn't always believe those prophets. In fact, repeatedly throughout Israel's history, what did they do to the prophets? They persecuted them. They killed them. They beat them. The message of God was not received by his people. But that didn't change the fact that he kept his message consistent and he continually revealed it to them. The faithfulness of God's message does not depend upon whether or not we receive it. And for his prophets, some of them were even told at the outset, just so you know, congratulations, you're about to be the spokesperson for God. And just so you know, the rest of your ministry as my spokesperson. No one's going to ever listen to you. They're going to constantly reject you. Imagine if that was your job. Imagine if your job was to speak for God, and he told you right off the bat, just so you know, everyone's going to hate you ultimately because they hate me, but also because they hate the message that I'm giving you to give to them. As a people pleaser myself, I don't like that. I don't like when people don't like me, and I don't like having to give a message that I know will not be received well. I can't imagine these prophets who are told, I'm going to go the rest of my life with people hating me? And yet God faithfully revealed His Word through His prophets, but also through the prophet In verse 76, Zacharias goes from blessing God and rehearsing what God has done to specifically turning to his eight-day-old son, perhaps even cradling his son in his arms. He had just circumcised, performing the sign of the Old Testament covenant. And as he looks into the eyes of his little child that he never dreamed he would have, and yet God revealed to him he would, he utters these words, "'You, child.'" will be called the prophet of the highest. Of all the prophets that have been, you're the prophet. Because your job is to go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. We sing a song sometimes at Christmas, or at least you've heard it, A lot of popular groups have sung it, Mary, Did You Know? And I think it's a really interesting song. Think of the heart of a mother staring into the eyes of the Son of God, who also is her child. And we think, Mary, did you know what Jesus was going to do, what he would say? Did you know he would die on a cross? But imagine Zacharias looking into the eyes of his son. Thinking, I'm an old man just like Abraham was an old man. And my wife Elizabeth was an old woman just like Sarah was an old woman. And Abraham and Sarah were told by God, In your old age, you'll have a child. And they did. And throughout the rest of Israel's history, we see the results. Here we are, Zacharias and Elizabeth, an old couple, and just like them, promised a child, given this child. But this child has a special purpose. As Zacharias looks into the eyes of his little boy, he realizes that his little boy will be the messenger to go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Abraham and Sarah may have wondered if their son would be the Messiah. Zacharias knew his son was the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Zacharias may have wondered as he looked at that little child, what will he say? What will he be like? All the rest of the prophets of Israel were maligned and attacked and beaten and killed. Will my son be beaten and killed? Will my son's message be heard? He's the prophet. He'll prepare the way for the Messiah. Of all prophets, you would think this would be the one the people would listen to. But he didn't know. All he knew was that this son was the prophet of the highest who would go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people, that this prophet was going to be like no other. And so God revealed his Messiah through that prophet, but he also reveals himself, as Zacharias notes here, through the sun, and you'll notice in your manuscript that I have it in quotation marks, sun, as in the big fiery ball in the sky. Because when Zacharias is talking about God in verse 78, he says, through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. It's as though, he says the Messiah, the one that my Son will prepare the way for, will be like a sun shining light in its brilliance to the people who sit in darkness. That's why we read John 1 this morning. Because what was Jesus but the light of the world to be the manifestation of the brilliance of God and when Zacharias talks about the day spring on high, from on high, he's actually quoting from the last book of the Bible he had at his time, which was Malachi. And when he quotes from there, I believe he's quoting from chapter 4 in verse 2. Where Malachi says, But to you who fear my name, obviously he's speaking for the Lord, but to you who fear my name, the sun, S U N, of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and shall grow fat like stall fed calves. The sun of righteousness. Zacharias refers to as the dayspring from on high. The sunrise that comes upon us. This revelation of God, the greatest revelation there is in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly whoever wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know for certain. But whoever he is, comments on this very point when he says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, including John the Baptist, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. The day spring from on high, the Son of God, the greatest revelation of God to mankind, the one whom having not seen, Peter says, you love. This sunrise would shine light to those in darkness, and I would would be remiss if I didn't make this last point here, that Zacharias makes, which is that one one of the reasons he gives for us blessing the name of God is that we have reconciliation with God. We are sitting in darkness apart from God. Our sin has separated from us, Scripture says, and yet, Zacharias says, you have given to us the dayspring, the sunrise from on high, and that sunrise is shining in our blackened hearts so that now, where once I was blind, I could see. And he will give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. We have no reason to fear the shadow of death because the day spring from on high has arisen. And he has arisen to shine lights into our hearts so that we might come to the knowledge of the gospel. Which leads me to ask, have you believed that? You are someone, if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, you are someone who, according to Zacharias in his song, is sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. It's what you deserve. It's what you're going to get. Unless you turn to the sunrise, the day spring from on high, whose light will shine its brilliance into your soul, and you will awaken with life and experience the forgiveness of sins. This last phrase in verse 79, what will this sunrise do? What will this day spring from on high who has visited us, the presence of God once more coming to us, what will He do? He will guide our feet into the way of peace. If there is anything that Scripture indicates, it is that our world is filled with conflict. From Genesis 3 all the way through the rest of Scripture, it is filled with conflict until Jesus Christ brings peace as the Prince of Peace, and one day there will be ultimate peace with no more conflict. And it is the way of peace that we can have, but it's only through Him. He's the only way. Other religions may say you need to find your inner peace. Other religions may say there's other ways to experience peace. Some people in our culture might say there's great ways to experience peace through meditation. You can experience peace that way. You can experience peace through community. But ultimately, Zacharias knew exactly what every Christian knows, that the only way we get peace is if our feet are guided into its way. And our feet are only guided into its way when we turn our gaze to the day spring from on high. Jesus Christ. So we can have reconciliation with God. Have you ever in your marriage just been frustrated with the times when you guys fight? Or when there's conflict? Don't you just long for some kind of restitution or not restitution, but uh, some reconciliation? Don't you long for, for something where there, there's a sense of peace that you get? sometimes, it's almost as though when you make up after the conflict, it's, it's so much better, right? When, there's, when there was once conflict, but now there's reconciliation. Imagine how much greater that feeling of, and sense of peace there is when the reconciliation of conflict is between the creature and his creator. You were created by God to know and enjoy his presence, to watch him visit you. But your sins have separated you from him, and the only way you will know peace is if you turn to the dayspring from on high, the sunrise, who will shine light into your heart. Zacharias' song of praise is one, I believe, filled with reasons to bless the name of God. And if we come to gather as Christians on Wednesdays, or Sunday morning, or Sunday school, or Sunday evening, simply as a tradition, a ritual, and don't have our hearts filled, overflowing, with praise to who God is and what He has done for us. I think that our worship is shallow. Our worship must be deeper than just a sense of tradition than just a sense of duty that I need to come to church because I know it's expected of me as a Christian. I think our hearts should come together every Sunday with a sense of praise and awe and adoration for who God is and what he has done. This wonderful song, the Benedictus of Zacharias, should be a song that we sing each day. For we have been redeemed We have seen the revelation of God and we now know peace with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've given to us peace through Christ. Lord, my prayer is that the person in this room who does not know peace, who has not seen reconciliation with you, who has not seen the day spring from on high, I ask that you would bring them to faith in Christ so that they might know and experience eternal peace. And joy, and I pray that we as Christians would be models of what it means to be thankful to you each day. Not just one day out of the year on a holiday. But that each day we awaken with hearts that are thankful. That our hearts would be filled with gratitude. Overflowing with praise and singing our own benedictus to you. Because of what you have done. Thank you for your kindness, Lord. We do not deserve it, but we praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.